You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. For the third week of Love is Dead, we're covering the life and loves of Clark Gable. Considered by many to be the king of Hollywood, certainly of the golden era, Gable is in some of the most enduring films of the 20th century. Today, we'll be covering his early life in Ohio, to his triumphs in Hollywood, to his untimely demise at the age of 59, and everything in between. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Sir, you... You should have made your presence known. In the middle of that beautiful love scene? That wouldn't have been very tactful, would it? But don't worry. Your secret is safe with me. Sir, you are no gentleman. And you, miss, are no lady. Oh. But don't think that I hold that against you. Ladies have never held any charm for me. First you take a low, common advantage of me. Then you insult me. I meant it as a compliment. And I hope to see more of you when you're free of the spell of the elegant Mr. Wilkes. He doesn't strike me as half good enough for a girl of your... Uh, what was it? Your passion for living? Born William Clark Gable on February 1st, 1901 in Cades, Ohio, Clark was the only child of Will Gable, an oil well driller. His mother died 10 months after the future actor was born of an epileptic seizure. Clark was then sent to live with his mother Adeline's family in Pennsylvania until his father remarried in 1903. Jenny, Clark's stepmother, would spoil her only child, and Clark would grow up to be a tall, shy adult with a love for the arts. After a string of financial difficulties, William moved the family to a farm in Palmera Township, Ohio. Clark quickly tired of farm life and dropped out of high school at 16 to get a job in a nearby Akron tire plant. It was in Akron that Clark discovered acting after attending a performance of The Bird of Paradise in 1918. He knew then what he wanted to be and volunteered at the playhouse that put on the show, doing anything they needed him to. He just wanted to be near the stage. When it looked like young Clark might finally get his opportunity to traipse the boards in a production for the first time, tragedy struck the Gable family. Jenny, his beloved stepmother, passed away in 1920 from tuberculosis and bowel cancer. Following Jenny's death, Clark's father moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma to get back into the oil business. Clark followed soon after. When Clark turned 21, he received a $300 inheritance from his mother's family trust, which today would equate to just under four grand. This money, coupled with what he'd earned working for his father wildcatting and removing sludge from the oil fields, allowed Clark to move to the Pacific Northwest to pursue acting further. In Portland, Oregon, Clark worked as a necktie salesman at a department store where he met local actor Earl Larimore. Earl introduced Clark to Franz Dorfler, a member of Earl's theater group. Clark and Franz started dating, and the couple soon auditioned for a larger theater group, the Astoria Players. 
though eager to act, Clark's inexperience was evident, but the group allowed him to join anyway. Earl had a major hand in this. Clark and Franz toured with the Astoria players around the Pacific Northwest until the company went bankrupt. The couple returned to Portland where Clark began taking nightly acting classes with coach Josephine Dillon. Josephine took a shine to him and would be the one whom began Clark's transformation into a movie star. She got him veneers, changed his hair, and put him on a diet to bulk up his wiry frame. She also trained him to lower his voice, which was naturally loud and quite high-pitched, improved his posture, and helped him with his facial expressions. After all of this, and of course extensive acting training, Josephine believed Clark was ready for the pictures. Clark and Josephine were also ready for something else. You said you liked Roquefort, and I was just telling you how they slapped it out. Do you want me to slap you out of this room? You and what man's army? If you don't keep quiet, I'm going to lock you up in one of the outhouses. What would you think of that? I'd still like Roquefort. I mean Gorgonzola. (laughs) There, I knew you had a laugh in you. That's perfect. Shake and go to the head of your class. (laughs) Now, wait a minute, Fred. Come here. Hey. Now, you talk too much, but you're a cute little trick of that. Why haven't you been around before? You change your mind quick enough. Josephine Dillon was born in Denver, Colorado on January 26, 1884, the daughter of a local judge whom later became a Los Angeles district attorney. Josephine studied acting at Stanford University before trying to make it on Broadway as an actress, but that dream never shook out for her. This was when she turned to teaching acting. She moved to Portland where she started the little theater that catered to the wealthy students of the area. When she decided Clark was ready to take a stab at Hollywood, Josephine relocated there first in the summer of 1924. She started up the Dillon Stock Company to continue teaching acting and create a source of revenue for the two. Any extra money she had from the business went toward furthering Clark's career. Clark followed her to Los Angeles five months later, and they married on December 18, 1924. On their marriage license, Clark claimed to be 24, he was 23, and Josephine claimed she was 34, she was 40. Clark soon found work as a background actor in several silent films. While the background work was plentiful, he was not offered anything than bit roles and serial shorts. This led him back to the theater. After traveling with a theater group in Houston, Texas in 1927 to 1928, Clark moved to New York City where Josephine attempted to do for him what she couldn't achieve for herself and get him work on Broadway. Clark soon found success on the stage in the play Machinal, which earned him rave reviews and several small film roles. Hollywood took notice. With an MGM contract on the horizon, his marriage, which Josephine would later describe, if at all, as a marriage of convenience, was over. Clark had asked her several times for a divorce in the five years they had been married, but Josephine never took him seriously. She would eventually file for legal separation on March 28, 1929, on the grounds of desertion, and their divorce was finalized on April 1, 1930. Two days after their divorce... Clark was remarried. He would later claim that his marriage to Josephine had never been consummated. Josephine would continue teaching acting, rarely if ever speaking about her famous ex-husband, and never remarrying. Though if she was ever asked, she would always say she still had love for Clark. Later in life, Clark helped her pay her mortgage when a tabloid story about the two nearly ruined her career. 
When Clark passed away, it was reported that he made sure his estate would pay off the rest of her mortgage. I do want to take this opportunity of expressing my thanks and sincere gratitude to Mr. Frank Capra, the director of It Happened One Night, and Miss Claudette Colbert, who was gracious enough to co-star with me in that same picture. Thank you. Clark's first two wives are clearly strategic marriages that would further his career. Josephine molded Clark, and his second wife polished him. Before he met his second wife, Clark was, shall we say, a bit of a gold digger. Even before his divorce to Josephine, he was known for enjoying the company of rich older women. In 1930, Clark was remarried to his Texas socialite named Maria Franklin Prentice Lucas Langham, or Rhea for short. She, like Josephine, was about 15 years older than Clark, and he was her fourth husband. She had the means to bankroll Clark's dreams in Los Angeles, and the couple moved there shortly after getting married. Clark's second try in Hollywood was much more successful than the first. The new polish his wife's money gave him certainly didn't hurt. While performing in a Los Angeles stage production of The Last Mile, he was offered a contract with Pathé Pictures. He would make one picture for the financially struggling studio, The Painted Desert, which features his first speaking role. Clark then screen-tested for Warner Brothers, but Daryl F. Zanuck, the head of production at the time, didn't like Clark's look, saying, quote, his ears are too big and he looks like an ape. MGM disagreed with this assessment of Clark, and after testing for Irving Thalberg over at MGM, he was offered a $650 a week contract. Clark was hired during MGM's attempts to expand the male talent pool at their studio. He quickly rose up the ranks and was developed into a, quote, lumberjack in evening clothes by MGM, an image that was perpetuated by the movie magazine Screenland. Clark was often paired with MGM's more established female actors in an attempt to boost his popularity with audiences. Early co-stars included Joan Crawford, whom he starred in several films with, before an affair between the two married actors almost destroyed both of their careers. Their first film together, Dance Fools Dance in 1931, was Clark's first starring role. Their relationship was uncovered while the two were shooting a film called Possessed in 1931, which was ironically about an affair. The relationship was called, quote, the affair that nearly burned Hollywood down by photoplay journalist Adela St. John's. MGM kept the two apart, threatening to cancel both of their contracts if they got so much as a whiff of them carrying on this indiscretion further. Clark then started working with other gorgeous leading ladies, including Marion Davies and Jean Harlow. Clark and Jean's chemistry in Red Dust from 1932 was undeniable, and MGM quickly lined up several other films for the two to star in, a total of six in just five years. It likely would have been more, but Jean Harlow died tragically at the age of 26 while the two were shooting Saratoga. Since Harlow passed away before shooting was completed, the film had to be finished using doubles. Clark later described completing the film with her double as being in the arms of a ghost. In 1934, with nothing for Clark to do at MGM, and they not wishing to have him sit around and collect $2,000 a week doing nothing, Clark was sent out to Columbia at $2,500 a week to make a film called It Happened One Night. Gable famously didn't like the script, and his co-star Claudette Colbert only agreed to do the film if it would wrap in time for her to take a long-planned skiing vacation. 
Production was tense, but the film was a critical hit. It happened when Knight would earn Clark and Claudette Academy Awards for their performances, and the film became the first to sweep the big five at the Oscars. The awards for screenplay, lead actor and actress, director, and picture. While he'd been popular before the release of this film, Clark Gable was now a full-blown movie star. Clark returned to MGM and made a series of pictures with Spencer Tracy in an effort to boost Tracy's career. Their first team-up, San Francisco in 1936, remains the third highest grossing film of Clark's career. This film, as well as Test Pilot and Boomtown, would cement the two in film history as a duo. Off-screen, they were friends and drinking buddies. During the production of The Call of the Wild in 1935, Clearly not learning his lesson from the Joan Crawford situation, Clark started up another affair with co-star Loretta Young, whom became pregnant. The pregnancy was hidden by the studio, and Clark's biological daughter, Judy Lewis, was born in secret on November 6, 1935. Nineteen months after the birth of her daughter, Loretta claimed that she had adopted the baby. This fooled no one, as the newborn was a dead ringer for Clark Gable. Loretta would use bonnets to hide her daughter's ears, which were reportedly just like her father's. Clark's career was never affected by this, and he never acknowledged his biological daughter. Judy did not know that Loretta was actually her biological mother and that Clark Gable was her biological father until five years after Clark's death and kept this secret her entire life. She revealed her parentage in her memoir, which was published posthumously. In 2014, Judy's son Christopher Lewis and his wife claimed in a BuzzFeed expose that his mother had been conceived as the result of date rape. As both Loretta and Clark were both long dead when this allegation was made, and no firsthand record of the alleged assault exists, this claim has not, and probably cannot, be substantiated. Corner and the wedding in the West. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard return from Kingman, Arizona, as Mr. and Mrs. Clark Gable. And even a girl like this thinks he's wonderful. This news means a good many broken hearts all over the world. But stick to the man you've got, girls, even if he has got flat feet. During his rise to stardom, Clark's second marriage had unsurprisingly fallen apart. He'd also fallen in love with another woman, and Clark and Rhea divorced on March 7, 1939, after reaching a $500,000 settlement, which he only managed to pay because of a recent role he'd signed on to. Like his first wife, Rhea had not wanted to consent to the divorce, despite the fact that the two hadn't lived together for several years. After the divorce, Rhea would stay in Hollywood for a few years, dating several actors before returning to Houston. Like Josephine, she would never remarry. The next film Clark did was the one that turned him from a movie star to a full-blown icon of cinema. I'm talking, of course, about Gone with the Wind. Now head over heels in love with Carol Lombard, Clark had been approached to play Rhett Butler in the film adaptation of the novel Gone with the Wind. It had been Carol whom suggested Clark go after the role, even buying him the 1,037-page tome, which he refused to read. Carol Lombard had been born into a wealthy Indiana family and grew up in Los Angeles. Like her future second husband, she broke into Hollywood with bit parts before managing to sign a contract with Paramount Pictures. 
Carol got her start in dramatic films before starring in the comedy 20th Century in 1934. The screwball comedy genre proved to be a good fit for the actress, and her role in My Man Godfrey in 1936 earned her an Oscar nomination. Wanting to actually win an Oscar, even back then the dramatic roles tended to win at the Oscars over the comedic performances, Carol attempted unsuccessfully to move back to drama. It was during this time she became reacquainted and eventually married Clark Gable. Clark and Carol began dating in 1936 while Clark was still married. Clark was cast in Gone with the Wind after Gary Cooper turned it down, believing the film would be a massive flop. Clark only signed on to the film to pay off Rhea and refused to use a southern accent in the role. Carol had hoped that she would get to play the part of Scarlett O'Hara opposite her beau, but the role went to Vivian Lee. Despite Gary Cooper's prediction, Gone with the Wind Adjusted for Inflation is the highest grossing film of all time. By today's rates, the film made over $3.7 billion. The film would also win 10 Academy Awards. Clark and Carol eloped during a break from filming Gone with the Wind in a Kingman, Arizona ceremony on March 29, 1939. They later purchased a ranch in Encino, California for $50,000. Mom and Pa, as they called themselves, raised chickens, cows, and horses on their ranch. Clark would refer to this period of his life as the happiest. And leaving you now, I want you all to join me in raising your hands and making the sign of victory. The V sign popularized by our famous ally across the sea, Winston Churchill. Heads and hands up, America. Let's give a rousing cheer that will be heard in Berlin and Tokyo. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, a slew of Hollywood stars assembled to support the war effort. Clark and Carol were both fiercely patriotic and wanted to help in any way they could. Carol even sent a telegram to President Roosevelt asking what she and Clark could do to help out. FDR asked the couple to increase portrayals of patriotic roles in films and participate in bond drives, which the actress eagerly set out to do. Clark starred in films like Idiot's Delight with Norma Shearer, a World War II intrigue film. He and new recurring co-star Lana Turner also appeared in Somewhere I'll Find You in 1941, which betrayed the two as war correspondents who became trapped during a Japanese attack. These films, while historically serving an important role in the war effort, were hardly the caliber of Gone with the Wind, and film historian David Thompson pinpoints this period of Clark's career as the beginning of his decline. On January 16, 1942, at the end of one of her Bond tours, Carol boarded Transcontinental and Western Air Flight 3 out of Las Vegas with her mother and press agent Otto Winkler, whom had served as the best man at her and Clark's wedding. The airliner crashed into Potosi Mountain shortly after takeoff, killing everyone on board. Clark flew out to the wreckage the next day to claim the bodies of the three. Carol was declared the first war-related American female casualty of World War II. After seeing to the funerals, Clark returned to work a month later, 20 pounds lighter, and clearly still devastated. He would remain in the house he had bought with Carol for the rest of his life, never allowing changes to be made to her bedroom. According to those close to the actor, he was never the same after the loss of Ma. beautiful actress Carol Lombard, who met death in an air crash while touring the country selling war bonds, is honored by her countrymen. A giant new liberty ship, 
the SS Carol Lombard, is named in honor of the star whose motion pictures were known around the world. Lieutenant Commander Robert Montgomery and Miss Lombard's husband, Captain Clark Gable, are here as Irene Dunn smashes the traditional bottle against the ship's bow. With this great merchant ship, the American people pay tribute to an ardent patriot. Carol's death inspired Clark to join the U.S. Army under the Army Air Forces. The 41-year-old actor joined on August 12, 1942. MGM had been reluctant to let him go, and when Clark entered officer training school, the studio had cinematographer Andrew McIntyre enlist with him. Clark thrived during training and was chosen out of his graduating class to become their commencement speaker. Upon graduation, Captain Gable was given a special assignment with the first motion picture unit, a unit made up strictly of film industry professionals who were responsible for creating propaganda and training films for the war effort. Other members of this unit included Ronald Reagan, DeForest Kelly, and William Holden. During his two-year stint in the military, Captain Clark flew five combat missions, including ones into Germany. Hitler was a huge Clark Gable fan, would you believe, and even offered a reward to anyone who could capture the actor unscathed. On one mission, Clark was nearly killed, which got back to MGM, whom attempted to get Clark back to non-combat duty. Clark would return to Hollywood in 1943 to edit his film Combat America on a lot Warner Brothers had donated for government usage during the war. Clark was promoted to major in June 1944 and had hoped to return to combat, but was instead placed on inactive duty on June 12, 1944. His discharge papers were signed by Ronald Reagan. Clark returned to his ranch for some well-earned R&R. He resumed a relationship with actress Virginia Gray, whom he'd starred with in two of his last films before joining the Army. Clark would also get back to work, making several more World War II-centric films that dealt with either the war or the world after the war. His first film, Adventure in 1945, did well at the box office but was a critical flop. Clark continued a string of mediocre films, including Homecoming and Command Decision, both in 1948. Also during this time, he was in a brief but very public relationship with Paulette Goddard. The following year, Clark would remarry once again. Sylvia Ashley was an English model, actress, and socialite whom had her own string of former spouses, including Douglas Fairbanks Sr., a lord, a baron, and after Clark, a prince. It was the fourth marriage for both of them. The two married on December 20th, 1949 in San Luis Obispo. According to an article from the Daily News, which was published the day after the two wed, Clark had been dating both Sylvia and another British import, producer Joan Harrison, concurrently. The fact that he was dating both of them was common knowledge, but it didn't affect his career because, well, he was a man. The marriage to Sylvia was short-lived, and the two divorced on April 21, 1952. Two years later, Sylvia married Georgia Prince Dimitri Giordazzi, whom she remained married to for the remainder of her life. Sometimes when a person don't know what to do, the best thing is to just stand still. I'll guarantee you'll have something out here you wouldn't find on every corner. I, uh... I may not amount to much in some ways, but I am a good friend. 
Clark worked very consistently throughout the 50s, even remaking Red Dust, his first film with Gene Harlow, in 1953. Renamed Magombo, the film was directed by John Ford and also starred Grace Kelly and Ava Gardner. Rumors that Clark and Grace Kelly were an item appeared in the press, but according to Ava Gardner, it was never anything more than friendship. Clark left MGM after 23 years in 1954, citing his dissatisfaction with the roles he was being offered. MGM at this time, and, well, now as well, was struggling financially and had already released longtime talent, including Judy Garland, from contract. When it came time for Clark to renew, he refused and finished up his contract in March 1954. Joining the scores of actors recently freed from the studio system, Clark made two films for 20th Century Fox, getting box office royalties for the first time. 1955 would see him as the 10th biggest box office draw of the year, the last time he would crack the top 10. Clark, a lifelong heavy drinker, allegedly fell into a deep depression around this time. Clark married his fifth and final wife, Kay Spreckles, on July 11, 1955. The two had been friends, according to Clark, for about 15 years and had dated at some point before rekindling their relationship in late 1954, early 1955. Clark became a stepfather to the actress's children. Kay was an actress, and though she had several bit parts during her 10-year career, she was uncredited for all performances save her final film, The Actress, in 1953. The marriage was reportedly a stable one, and stepfatherhood reportedly suited Clark. Also in 1955, Clark formed a production company with actress Jane Russell and her husband to produce The King and Four Queens in 1956. This was the only time Clark would serve as a producer. Clark would spend the late 50s primarily working for Paramount. His last color film, It Started in Naples with Sophia Loren, was released in 1960. Clark gained 45 pounds while shooting on location in Italy, something he blamed on eating pasta, and was placed on a crash diet to pass the physical required to start his next film. That next film was his last. The film was The Misfits, which we mentioned last week as it was also Marilyn Monroe's final film. While not terribly well regarded upon its release, the film has since become a classic, likely in no small part to it being the final curtain call for two of the most iconic movie stars of all time. Clark was reportedly proud of his work on the film, having seen footage of his performance, but he never saw the film completed. On November 6, 1960, two days after The Misfits wrapped, Clark was rushed to the Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center after suffering a heart attack. He remained in the hospital for the next 10 days, where he slowly improved, before a second heart attack caused by an arterial blood clot ended the actor's life on November 16th. He was 59 years old. Kay made sure Clark was buried next to Carol Lombard. Four months later, his wife Kay gave birth at the same hospital her husband had died in. John Clark Gable was born on March 20th, 1961. Kay would sell Clark's beloved ranch, and developers divided the land up, calling it the Gable Estates. Kay passed away 22 years after Clark from complications during a triple bypass surgery. She was also laid to rest at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, near Clark and Carol. I saw an island in the Pacific once. Never been able to forget it. That's where I'd like to take her. She'd have to be the sort of a girl who... Well, jump in the surf with me and love it as much as I did. You know, nights when you and the 
moon and the water all become one. And you feel you're part of it, something big and marvelous. That's the only place to live. Why, the stars are so close over your head, you feel you could reach up and stir them around. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. Think of it as my virtual starving artist tip jar. This will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire better equipment. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out in the show notes. Next week, we're wrapping up February with a modern love story that has captivated tabloid readers for nearly 20 years. That's right. We're covering the lives and relationships and why people just can't seem to get over theirs of Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.